you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Today is going to be the last Sunday um, in regards to biblical values. We've hit on stewardship, rest, honor, and this week will be hospitality. And then after today, after this Sunday, we're going to be moving into a sermon series around biblical training. But again, we are bringing these biblical values out not to just beef us up as an organization or an entity, but really, as we mentioned several weeks ago, these values are really the wind that catch the sails and help us move. When we talk about being disciples and life together making disciples, these values help kind of give feet and movement and motion to what it is we're doing. More of the, oh, say, okay, so how are we doing this? How are we making disciples? And so forth. And so that's what these values are. And so a few weeks ago, or maybe a month ago or so, I was on the phone with a church planter in, um, in East Africa. It's kind of a crazy way how we even got connected. We're not even in the same denominations, same networks, anything. He was literally reaching out to churches in the area from where his wife was from. And he's a South African. His wife is an Arkansanian, if you will. And we just happened to be a church in some sort of proximity of what he was looking for. And so he emailed. And so we had no connection other than that, which was interesting, but it was an encouraging conversation. And he and his wife minister to the Somali people in East Africa, and they live in a Somalian city. And he was talking about that. We were praying together. And when we were talking about ministry, he asked me the question. He says, do you know how to spot a Somali spy? I was like, I have no clue. Not a clue. He said, they do not confess Christ in their home. That's how you spot a Somali spy. And he's speaking about in terms of being a missionary or being a church planter in that community, you'll have people who come around and go, yeah, I'm interested in Jesus, or yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But what really distinguishes them is are they willing to confess Christ in their home? Because when they confess Christ in their home, there is a legitimate cost involved. And those, and the reason he says they are spies is because they are legitimate spies. Coming around him, gaining favor with him, friendship with him, saying they're interested in this Jesus. But really what they're doing is they're spying him out, spying his family out, spying out this work in order to essentially suffocate their work and maybe push them out of the community. There are many definitions of hospitality. There are many religions and false churches that practice such a virtue. It's not unique to Christianity. But what makes it distinct as Christians is the confession of Christ in the act of hospitality. And in the home and a home that is centered on the confession and the life of Christ. You can always give somebody a sandwich or some clothes or water to drink. That is, in general, an act of hospitality. 
but that is not exclusively Christian. Those are functions of Christian hospitality, but at the core of Christian hospitality is Christ confessed. Christ lived out. And so today is going to sort of draw a line in how we think about hospitality. Are we a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus, or are we a spy? Are you a true disciple of Jesus, or are you just a spy? Hospitality, when we look at it in the Greek New Testament, is broken up and comprised of two words in Greek. It is the word love, which where we get phileo or Philadelphia, you know, city of brotherly love, phileo, love, and then the word for stranger. And so hospitality is a, and I'm quoting here, a concrete and personal expression of Christian love intended to include strangers and a circle of care. It is simply, and maybe over simply, it is the love of strangers or welcoming strangers. And hospitality is all over the Bible and has more significant meaning and practice. It is very rich, far greater than we could cover in this time. But for the anchor texts that are used for hospitality in the Bible, we would find them to be passages like Genesis chapters 18 and 19 with Abraham essentially hosting the angels, though he didn't realize he was hosting and being hospitable to angels. Luke chapter 14 and verse 12 through 14. Matthew chapter 25 and Hebrews 13. So Genesis 18, Luke 14, Matthew 25, Hebrews 13 are kind of the anchor texts or Scripture passages that Christian hospitality really um, defines itself. And so we see this in this way, and if I'm just going to kind of give a, a flyover of what these passages point out about hospitality, it is this. First, hospitality is the place where God's people remind one another of God's promises. You see that with the angels in Abraham and Sarah. This time next year, you will have a son. And this comes off the heels of God's covenant promise to Abraham that from him will come an offspring. Paul talks about this offspring as offspring singular being found ultimately in Christ. So there's this promise of an offspring to come. And this was spoken in the realm of hospitality. Secondly, hospitality brings you into conflict with the world. You go from Genesis 18 to Genesis 19, Abraham's nephew Lot is in a situation in the city of Sodom. These two men, now identified as angels, come to Lot. Lot brings them in. He's hospitable to them. He feeds them. He gives them things to drink, so on and so forth. But he also provides protection for them as the men of the city come and want to have their way with these two guests, these two strangers of Lot. Lot holds the ground. He does not allow that to happen. And so what you're seeing in, ba in basic form is a hostility that hospitality brings in conflict with the world. Third, hospitality was also a way of the community, not just the individual. Hospitality is a way of the community, not just the individual. You see this really laced in the story of uh, biblical history as God is for His people, as He brings out His people from the land of Egypt. 
this nation, this people who are identified as strangers, as sojourners, as aliens, as exiles. And He calls all of them to be hospitable not only to one another, but even to proselytes or other aliens and strangers who may want to come into the camp. But then we transition into the New Testament. Jesus comes in the New Testament and He turns the whole economy of hospitality, the whole economy of hospitality on its head in Luke 14. Hospitality then is more than just being kind to others and more than just giving them something to eat and drink. It's a heart change that expects nothing in return knowing that we have already everything in Christ. That's what Jesus says. Don't just welcome in people who can repay you. Welcome in the poor, the marginalized, the hungry, those who cannot repay you because ultimately what you have will be paid back to you in the final resurrection. Flips it on its head. But even more than that, in Matthew 25, Hospitality is tied to the entry into the kingdom of God. Hospitality is tied to the entry into the kingdom of God. In that judgment day, you're going to be judged based on these hospitality principles or functioning. And we'll get into that soon. And that's where I want to hang for a bit today. What Jesus says in Matthew 25 gears the disciples up for what will come in a few short days. Soon there will be devastation, sorrow, suffering, followed by ultimately a great fall of the Holy Spirit upon the Jews and the Gentiles. Matthew 25 was written just shortly before Jesus died in the the final week of His life. And when the Holy Spirit falls upon the Jews and the Gentiles, thousands upon thousands of new believers will immediately, listen, immediately go from citizens and residents of the world to strangers and aliens in the world. Overnight, the church will strongly or grow strongly in need of hospitality. And after Jesus ascends, the church carries on this hospitality just as Jesus taught and lived. And so we begin to see, really in the book of Acts and beyond, how the church functions primarily with hospitality. Three different ways. One, hospitality was a recognition or was an expression of respect and recognition. There's no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman. We are all one in Christ. So there's respect, there's honor here in recognizing that. Secondly, hospitality provided structure for meeting the physical needs of the body, of the poor, of the stranger, of the traveling Christian. And third, hospitality was expressed in the homes of believers for the purpose of discipleship. It was in the home that you had the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word. You had relationships being forged and then reinforced. You had social bonds really being met. And you see really church discipline taking place in this realm as well as there were two people who were not welcomed in the homes in this time 
It was those who persisted in immoral lifestyles based out of 1 Corinthians 5 and those who would spread false teaching based out of 2 John 9-11. through So just like the New Testament church, we are operating in this post-resurrection life and we are awaiting for the offspring of Abraham to make His second return. And we're doing this while we face trials of the world and also the blessings of the church. Jesus' return, that final judgment, is a day we are eagerly longing for and hospitality is a virtue that helps carry us through this life and into eternity as we will be welcomed to the eternal table of the King. So biblical hospitality. Matthew 25 doesn't happen in a vacuum. has a bigger context. If you were to just thumb back to chapters 21 through 24, what you're seeing is Jesus in the final week of His life. Chapters 21 through 23, Jesus is really speaking in opposition to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It gets pretty heated. It gets pretty intense. And here are some of the key points of this teaching. Jesus reminds them to love God and love neighbor. They, remember, they come and they challenge Him. Teacher, what is the greatest command? And Jesus responds, to love your God and to love your neighbor. And He follows that up with saying that all the law and all the prophets depend on these. Loving God and loving neighbor is the very root reason we have the prophets and the very reason we have the law. The Jews in this time were constantly trying to prove their righteousness by the law. They were outwardly righteous, looking righteous, but inwardly they were dead. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They were hypocrites at best. They ultimately did not love God and love neighbor. They loved themselves and they loved how they looked. Jesus also in His teaching defines greatness in a very upside-down kind of way, saying that whoever is greatest among you becomes a servant. Whoever is a servant becomes great. And Jesus makes clear that there will be conflict in the world. When you get to Matthew chapter 24, this is more explicitly Jesus talking to His disciples saying, look, just so you know, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, There's going to be conflict. There's going to be all sorts of these things. Don't freak out. They're supposed to happen. In fact, they must happen. Then the Son of Man will come. And He he teaches His disciples also that their entire life is to be on the lookout and preparing for the coming of Jesus. This is where He ends up teaching in parables. Like the parables of the virgins waiting for their husband to come, right? Preparing, always being on the lookout, not being surprised when all this calamity and turmoil takes place, but instead understanding and interpreting the times as Jesus has said, and thus we are constantly looking up, anticipating his return. And this is where hospitality becomes critical. Hospitality in Matthew's gospel up to this point is. Really, the way that believers endure hard time and hard times by caring for one another. And it's the way believers help encourage and point one another to the coming of Jesus. 
and to not lose focus. It's not just a social gathering. It's not just, oh, let's have fun and let's just play games and you know, talk about funny things. But no, there's, a, there's an intent. There's a meaning behind hospitality. It's reminding one another of Christ. And so let me read to you Matthew chapter 25, 31-46. If you wouldn't mind, please standing during the reading of God's Word. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. You may be seated. <clears throat> so Jesus talks about this final judgment of what is going to happen. Recall the imagery from last week, from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4-6. through six, Talking about how God adorned man or crowned man with glory and honor. Made him just a little lower than the angels, right? And we showed that picture of glory and honor being perfectly fulfilled in Christ and how He would become the second Adam. You had the first Adam who could not fulfill the mandate of creation. His glory and honor was faded and tarnished, but Jesus would come with a radiant and full glory and honor of God, and He would fulfill what Adam could not. He would be the second Adam. And so what Jesus is telling His disciples in this imagery here, really in verses 31 and 33, that He is the Son of Man. Capital S, Son of Man. And the angels are the ones, the ones whom He both created and was created under in order for to come down as a human and save them, 
they will be with Him in the judgment. And so what we see is this powerful picture of Christ. And not only will He be seen as just the Son of Man, but 34 tells us as the King. Not a King as one of many kings, but no, the King. The one and only King. And He comes and He'll separate between the sheep and the goats. Is sheep? Plural on its own? Thank you. You're the director of a school. It's just sheep, guys. I was public schooled. Sorry about that. Sheep and goats. Is that not funny? I'm not funny. I understand. Okay. So sheep and goats is an allusion back to Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 17 through 19. I'll let you read that on your own. But really, what you have here is Jesus distinguishing between those who are actually his sheep and those who almost look like his sheep but are not sheep. They are goats. And the king will say to those who are on his right, and this right is a place of honor. The left hand is really the place of disgrace. Kind of reminds me of the Psalms, at your right hand are blessings forevermore. There is blessings forevermore for the sheep who are at the right hand of God. And he says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God intended from the very beginning to fashion human beings in a community for fellowship with Himself. That's how God designed these people, us, to be. And so as He's speaking to the sheep at His right hand, He begins to talk to them about the very things He's judging them for. These characteristics. And these are the things that will bring them into the kingdom of God that will cause them to inherit the kingdom of God. And it is in verses 35-36. through I was hungry and you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. Stranger, you welcomed me. You clothed me. You visited me. You came to me when I was in prison. And of course, the righteous will say, how did we ever possibly know this? How could we have possibly known this? Because at this point in time, Jesus will have died, resurrected, and ascended. He will not be physically living on the earth. But Jesus says, as you did to the least of these brothers, my brothers, you did to me also. And so who are these brothers? These brothers here are the disciples of Christ. When you look at the context of Matthew here, some try to say that the brothers here are just humanity in general. And, and I don't discount the reality that it could have a flavor of humanity in general, but in the context of Matthew, I believe is speaking more specifically of those who are disciples of Jesus. A couple examples in Matthew 10.42, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. A brother is a little one or a least of these. And also in Matthew 23.8, where Jesus calls the disciples His brothers. He calls them all to be brothers under the Father in heaven. And so, what we have here, and the reason that Jesus can associate Himself 
to these brothers or to these people is because by faith in Jesus Christ, they have in them the promised Holy Spirit, Christ in them, the hope of glory, as I've mentioned several times from the stage. So as they serve one another, as they care for one another, as they clothe one another, as they visit one another, they are also visiting and caring for Jesus. Remember when the Apostle Paul was persecuted? Or excuse me, was persecuting the church. Jesus came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't physically persecuting Jesus. He wasn't physically there. But he was persecuting the church. And that was a direct offense, direct assault, direct persecution against Jesus Himself. This might be kind of a hard pill to swallow because and what I'm saying is us focusing tightly on the church, our brothers and sisters, in our culture we have such a strong or sometimes a visceral reaction to church and church culture. We, many of us, have been burned by the church. We would prefer to hang out with lost people only all the time. Just hang out with them only. And here's the thing we run into. If we reach the lost and they become saved, then they become the very church we constantly find ourselves pushing against. So sometimes we act like we just want our lost people to remain lost because we like them better than church people. Because if they became saved, then we don't really want anything to do with them. It's kind of like guilt by association. Hospitality is vital for the church. And that is not at the exclusion of the lost. Hear me out. But so the church can actually be the church. This means some of us are going to have to begin to shift in how we see the church. Begin to love the church like Jesus loves the church. Because in the last day, when you stand before Jesus, you're going to be judged on your love and hospitality towards the church. Ultimately, Him. Hospitality towards believers encourages us. It reminds us that Jesus will soon come. Like Abraham and Sarah were told of the offspring that would come as they were hosting these men who later turned out to be angels. So we are reminded in the act of hospitality that Jesus is going to return. And much like hospitality brought Abraham's nephew Lot much contention and hostility with the world, so does the hospitality of Jesus put us naturally at odds with the world. And this is where we need the community to press in around us. And for God to keep us steadfast and not give up in resisting the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned him several weeks ago. Theologian, pastor, lived in the time of World War II. But he found himself in a unique position. In 1939, really kind of on the front end, brink of war, Bonhoeffer decided between going to the U.S. and staying in the U.S. He had visited, and he was essentially offered seminary professor jobs. Or to go home, back to Germany, and remain there. And while he was on a trip in the States in 39, 
he felt that conviction to be with his fellow man, to be back in Germany, knowing that at that time there was a rising dictator named Adolf Hitler who was, going, who was coming against the Jewish people. Not just Jewish in terms of religion, but Jewish in terms of race. It didn't matter if you were a Jew and didn't practice Judaism or a Jew and you did practice Judaism. This was a wiping out of the Jewish race. And Bonhoeffer had family who was Jewish. And he decided he wanted to be with his fellow man and live the rest of his days in Germany no matter what the results would be. As the Nazi party grew and the rumor of war was intensifying and finally just full-out war, there was this pressure to either come and be a part of the Third Reich or to be an enemy to be with the state or against the state. And many churches and pastors became friends with the state in this way, compromising biblical truth, but Bonhoeffer refused to submit to that sort of thinking or submit to the Nazi party. April 5th, 1943, Bonhoeffer was arrested. And they, he was arrested to openly keep him from teaching, preaching, writing, in order to persuade others, to persuade people away from the teaching and propaganda of the Third Reich. And so while he was in prison, however, he found favor with the guards. Just kind of like Joseph in the book of Genesis when he was in Egypt. He found favor with the guards and those guards would secretly take him to other poor prisoners and he would minister to them. He would care for them. In July of... 45, Bonhoeffer was transferred to a prison. His wife had just miscarried. And from that, he was then transferred to another prison where he then had no contact with the outside world. But we have these words recorded in a book called Life Together, which Bonhoeffer penned. In the introduction, it says, Bonhoeffer always seemed to me... This is, this is, these are the words of an English officer who was in prison with Bonhoeffer, along with many other nationalities, this English officer said, Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment, the thoughts and the resolutions it had brought us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meaning for all prisoners, the gallows. We said goodbye to him. He took me aside and he said, this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. The next day, he was hanged in Flossenburg. He wrote this book, Bonhoeffer did, while he was conducting an underground seminary. He pinned the words, life together. A book that we still use today in trying to learn what it means to be Christian community. 
And let me read these few words of Bonhoeffer. Not many. It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. And he's talking about the brethren he has behind bars. The measure with which God bestows the gift of visible community is varied. The Christian in exile is comforted by a brief visit of a Christian brother, a prayer together, and a brother's blessing. Indeed, he is strengthened by a letter written by the hand of a Christian. Bonhoeffer found encouragement in the act of hospitality. There was in that community a reminder that Jesus is coming. Bonhoeffer had plotted to take Adolf Hitler down. And he failed at it. But even so, that wasn't the end goal to stop this Nazi party. The end goal was not to just have Hitler off. The end goal and the prize was Christ. And so he could live a joyous life even in prison by living out and living through these ways of hospitality. We are watching war take place. I don't know a time in American that I've been alive as American we haven't been in war except maybe now. There's always war. Rumors of war. Persecution of believers. All sorts of injustices that are taking place. The question is, what do we do about it? Are we to do anything about it? Jesus seems to tell us a few things. And even though someone like Bonhoeffer did fight to go against Hitler, we too are to fight against injustices of our land. That's not the question here. But one one way that we are to respond to the terrible things of today is remembering first that these things must happen. If God didn't want them to happen, He wouldn't let them happen. But Jesus said by His very own mouth that these things would happen. And that hospitality is the one virtue we are to pursue, especially during those times. And why? Because it keeps our eyes on Him. And it continue, gives us a right posture and energy to endure. How else could Bonhoeffer make his way to the gallows with a smile on his face? With the turning up of hostility in the last couple of years, we should be seeing an increase of hospitality among the church. Are we a people expressing such hospitality? And I think this is part of the reason why we are bringing these values back up is because in the last couple of years, what we've done is we've isolated, pushed away, and locked ourselves down. But Jesus is saying, no, you should be pressing in even more. You need one another more than you could possibly know. But then there are those, unlike us, who will be judged as goats to the left hand of God. And so the very blessings of the sheep at the right hand become the very curse of the goats at His left hand you see in 41 through 45. And they have the same question. We didn't see you to know that we would have fed you or needed to feed you or give you something to drink or to clothe you or to come visit you. But Jesus 
ultimately will cast them away into eternal punishment and those who are righteous into eternal life. The religious leaders highlighted in chapters 21 to 23 shows us that these religious leaders, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, were outwardly trying to preserve the law and outwardly obey the prophets. And while they were doing that, they were missing the very thing of which the law and the prophets depend. That is, the greatest command to love God and love neighbor, and ultimately rightly expressed in hospitality. They were missing Jesus, who perfected all of the law and the prophets. They were more focused on the branches of the law and the prophets instead of its root. And because of this, they were ultimately blind to God, blind to genuine hospitality, blind to love of God, and blind to love of neighbor. Their love of God and neighbor was ultimately tied to their selves and them becoming the greatest and them being served. These goats were so focused on themselves or would be so focused on themselves that they murdered the Son of Man. They spent their lives following Jesus' death and resurrection by looking to kill His church. And as we know with the Apostle Paul, Paul persecuted the church. And Jesus called him out saying, why are you persecuting me? These are the ways of goats. And so having this eternal perspective of hospitality helps us inform the now in how we live. So here's where our hospitality and evangelism ultimately cross paths. Romans 12, verse 20 and 21 says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, do, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Galatians 6, I believe, talks about showing hospitality to all, especially those who are in the household of faith. So there is no call in the Bible to not be hospitable to lost people or people outside the church. It's very much a call. But we need to especially be focused on the church. But hospitality, in terms of the lost, is also a form, a method, a strategy, if you will, of evangelism to the lost. It is a form of evangelism in that you are hospitable in the name of Jesus. Not in the name of social good, or humanitarian efforts. Jesus in His life stood both as host and as guest in the realm of hospitality. And He handled both well. And in both positions, it lent Him to speaking the truth and He did so without ever violating basic hospitality principles. And I say this, I'm putting this this way, because in our way of thinking about evangelism, like if we were to kind of go back and last week we are talking about honor and shame, right, being right or wrong, we live in a culture of right and wrong. And so one of our main forms of evangelism is to correct somebody's wrong. Show them how we're right and they're wrong. And that's not wrong per se, 
But there's also this form of evangelism that brings in and shows honor to the world around them without compromising the Gospel and without just having to prove them wrong. There were times when Jesus, as a host, would welcome in the guests and principally speaking, He would value them. He would value the guest, even if this guest was completely against Him. And He would give them food. He would give them drink. He would give them the floor to speak. And never at any point did He just jump up and say, hey, let me tell you how you're, you're wrong and I'm right. He would posture Himself in such a way that His guest would invite Him into a conversation and Jesus would then enter. And as He entered, He spoke the truth. Let me give you a practical example of what this looks like. I asked my neighbor, Sage and I were talking about this the other day, my neighbor, one of them, is not a believer, but he loves smoking cigars. So I was like, hey, my buddy Brandon, you know him, gave me a gift for Christmas. It was an ashtray for cigars. I didn't honor you, brother. I'm sorry. We need to scratch that from the recording and everything. And it says, smoke a cigar to the glory of God. And I talked to my neighbor. I was like, hey, I heard you really love cigars. He's like, oh yeah, I've got like 20 of them in the house. If you ever want to, we'll just come out here in the cul-de-sac, throw out some chairs, and just smoke some cigars and throw rocks at cars. I'm like, okay, great. And so, he has, essentially as a host, or excuse me, I've hosted this opportunity, brought him in, and he's now inviting me to come into that with him. Does that make sense? It might be a little bit fuzzy. But now I'm going to enter into that space with him in that posture of hospitality and take the opportunity to speak more explicitly with him about Jesus. As a guest, Jesus would welcome, be welcomed into the homes of sinners. They would wash his feet. Washing feet would be really a symbol of saying, hey, I trust you, I'm with you. You're under, you are my guest. Whatever happens to you happens to me. I roll with you. And his feet would be washed. And he would come in and they would give him the floor to speak. And he would speak. And he did not take opportunity to disrespect them, to just shut them down. Understand, some conversations were stronger than others, but that wasn't necessarily put up by him. But he would speak plainly to them, the truth. And in no matter the case, Jesus was able to be both hospitable as a host and as a guest. He would uphold their functioning principles and rules and also give a clear presentation of the Word. And the result, either those folks would follow Jesus or they would knowingly reject Him. And for that, the hospitality of Jesus would be nothing more than heaping coals on their heads. Hospitality shows the world that if you think the wars and rumors of wars are scary and intimidating, there is a greater wrath to come, a greater punishment if one does not enter into the kindness of God's presence, His home, and eat of His bread, and drink of His water, and receive His grace and mercy. Isn't that astonishing? 
we as sinners would choose rather hell than to enter into the kindness of God's care. And that is the call for us today. And this is even what the author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 13.2. It says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The command to love God and neighbor is to continue on with the church. This hospitality is that they would show to one another. This hospitality they would show to one another would ultimately be entertaining to the angels. Just like as it was in the time of Abraham and Lot in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. These angels over hot bread and cold drinks sat at the table with Abraham and told him about his son who had come in year, a year's time. But more than that, these angels knew that the Word of God that they were delivering was much more than that. It was a wonderful message of the offspring of Abraham who would come ultimately to bring salvation to the world. And so these angels that we as believers are entertaining by our acts of hospitality, they're being entertained because of the reality of salvation unfolding before their very eyes. They're seeing the Word of God that was delivered in Genesis 18, if you will, continue to unfold and blossom throughout the generations, throughout the pages of Scripture, and continually through the church. They're being entertained by us offering to one another Jesus as the warm, delicious, filling bread of life. Offering to one another Jesus as the cool, refreshing living waters. Offering to one another and reminding one another of this God who tabernacles among us, making His home within us by His Spirit. When the angels of whom Jesus is far superior as we see in Hebrews 1 and 2, see His saints living this way, they're seeing the unfolding of salvation promised long ago. And that's why the author of Hebrews lays out in chapter 13 and verses 7-16 through how the church and its leadership are to live this out following the example of Christ. And so as the elders of Redeemer, we know we need to take the lead in modeling these biblical values, stewardship, rest, honor, and hospitality because all of them point us back to our God and keep us focused. They keep us looking forward to Him, to His return, and to the everlasting home. Hebrews 13, 14-16 sums this up nicely. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God.